and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomerinke, and I am joined today in the studio with Iceland Review staff writer Ragnar Thomas. We are going to be taking a look at his most recent piece for Iceland Review, Borrowed Crime, Fiction, Entertainment, Journalism. The Sensationalization of Tragedy In 2018, the New York Times published an essay by 17-year-old Rachel Chestnut, one of the winners of the magazine's student editorial contest. Her essay, entitled Is True Crime as Entertainment Morally Defensible?, noted that, quote, real-life acts of violence had long been masqueraded before the public, whether as crime pamphlets or investigative documentaries, but that the genre of true crime had, quote, only recently risen in prestige. Focusing primarily on the documentary series The Jinx, Chestnut acknowledged that true crime reporting had its advantages, but warned that such benefits were, quote, outweighed by the genre's tendency to exploit suffering, lean toward a preconceived narrative, prioritize ratings over morality, and manipulate public opinion. Her article concluded with a caveat that the true crime genre had the potential to open minds and act as a public judicial review, but in order for it to successfully do so, it must, quote, abandon the sensationalization of tragedy for entertainment's sake. Horror on Skedrarsandur On May 26, 1982, sisters Yvette and Mary Luce Bahoud arrived in Iceland from France. On August 15, after nearly three months of traveling, they came to the town of Dupavur in East Iceland. Having spent the night at a hotel, they planned to hitchhike to Skaftafell, a preservation area just south of the Vatnajökull Glacier, which had become a national park in 1957. They made it to the turnoff leading to the town of Höp, nestled in the southeast corner of Iceland, and, eager to reach their final destination that day, decided to linger on. As the clock ticked towards 5 p.m., a green Mercedes-Benz pulled over to the side of the road. It resembled a police vehicle. The driver was alone, looked as if he were in his 40s, and claimed that it was his job to ensure safety on the roads. He told the sisters to hop inside. Mary Luce and Yvette said that they were on their way to a rest hut not far from the Glacier Lagoon. When they arrived, however, they discovered that the hut was occupied. The driver said he knew of another rest hut on the way to Skaftafell. They reached their destination at around 8.30 p.m. beneath the drizzling rain. The man bade farewell. Three hours later, a vet and Mary Luce awoke to the sound of the green Mercedes-Benz. The driver, now carrying a rifle in one hand and a flashlight in the other, told them that he had been ordered by the police in Akurere to arrest them because they had, quote, been smoking hash. Tensions escalated quickly, and the man eventually struck Mary Luce with the butt of his rifle. A vet fled. When Mary Luce regained consciousness, she heard two gunshots. She managed to find her way to the highway, where she waved down a police vehicle. Earlier, as Mary Luce had lain unconscious, a truck driver had driven east along the highway and noticed the green Mercedes-Benz parked on the shoulder of the road. The driver recounted his experience to Morkenbladet newspaper. I saw a man standing next to the car. 
I stopped my truck and rolled down the window, which was when I heard a panicked scream from a young woman. I asked the man what had happened, and he replied that he had accidentally struck the woman with his car in the dark. That's when the girl emerged from behind the vehicle and groped her way towards my truck. She grabbed hold of the bumper, pulled herself up to the steps of my car, and clutched the side mirror. She yelled, Please help me, he tries to kill me, and then she kept repeating that statement. I asked the man what the hell was going on, the truck driver continued, and he told me that she was dazed following the collision and entreated me to get some help. I drove away and the last thing I saw was the man holding the young woman near his car. Yvette would be found dead in the trunk of the Benz the following morning. The killer was later discovered hiding in a cave. He was sentenced to 16 years in prison. Moral Questions The tragedy on Skedarosantur is not faded from history. A TV episode on the case aired in the early 2000s, and it has recently served as inspiration for a novel and a fictional TV series. It's like many other high-profile cases across the world that seem destined to be dug up again and again and adapted to the format du jour. When I revisited the case a few weeks ago, in connection with a podcast on Icelandic crime that I was helping to produce, I contacted the truck driver who had given that harrowing account of leaving a vet on the night that she was murdered. His phone number was listed publicly. So you're going to dredge up this case again, are you? He responded in an overtly negative tone. I've been wrestling with his question and others like it ever since. Why do we revisit these cases? Where does the line between journalism and exploitation lie? And what is it about criminal cases, especially those of a gruesome nature, that so fascinate us? Seustet Mausson Seustet Mausson is Iceland's leading crime reporter. Since the 90s, he's produced television programs and audio documentaries on over 60 criminal cases in Iceland. His voice and his name have gradually grown synonymous with the genre of true crime. To tell you the truth, I'm not really interested in crimes, Seustet told me. I'm interested in the human aspect, in human behavior and responses to strange circumstances. In the early 2000s, Seustet produced a television program on the murder of Yvette Bahoud. It remains one of the most dramatic criminal cases he has covered. Extremely dramatic. I remember first hearing the story on the radio when I was younger. Seustet was 15 when Yvette was murdered. I followed it quite closely on the news. It was so horrific because this kind of thing was unheard of in Iceland. For his coverage of the case, Seustet managed to track down Mary Luce, who eventually agreed to an interview. He also reached out to the aforementioned truck driver, who was, if memory serves him, unwilling to participate. In many of these cases where you have individuals who sincerely regret their actions, I completely understand that they don't want to talk about it again. I think we have to show understanding, patience, and care towards these individuals. According to Seustet, every criminal case involves a person who becomes unwittingly tangled in events. But I think it's also important to explain that their pain won't go away by itself or by talking with a psychologist. They must revisit the pain, and I sincerely believe that in many cases, and I've certainly experienced this with many of the programs that I've made, that this sort of holistic approach is therapeutic, 
That is, if people are willing to go through it again in a constructive way. But of course, not everyone is prepared to do that. Seuste's interview with Mary Luce is especially noteworthy for how magnanimous she appeared to be in regard to her sister's murderer. Whether the program helped her to process the tragedy is uncertain, but whatever the case, Seuste, unlike many less qualified producers of true crime material, afforded Mary Luce the opportunity of telling her side of the story. He also reached out to the murderer. Seostet believes that this kind of holistic coverage of criminal cases, whether in podcast or TV form, is important given the nature of the phenomenon. I am absolutely certain that crimes are something we need to regularly address. We need to adopt a holistic approach to these cases, particularly given the nature of crimes and the nature of media coverage on crimes. Seostet explained that given the sensitive nature of crimes, and how they tend to unfold slowly over time, from the time that the investigation begins, say, and until a trial commences, having someone follow up on these cases and reflect on them after the dust is settled is crucial to attaining a fuller understanding of what happened. There is this attitude within certain media that Iceland is too small for such programs, but I think Iceland is too small not to have such programs, because the alternative is to settle for gossip, wrong-headed ideas, or limited information about what has occurred. I think it's very important, particularly in such a small society, to stick to the facts. That being said, Seustet only reports on cases if they meet certain criteria. I approach each case with the questions, is it interesting? Is it of interest to the public? And I also need to ask myself, what motivates me to cover it? Is there an untold story here? Is there some misunderstanding about the case? If I can answer these questions in the affirmative, I can justify, at least to myself, that there is value in reporting on the case. Stefan Maune Stefan Maune is among Iceland's most popular crime writers. He's written over 20 novels and has been awarded the Blood Drop, Iceland's Crime Fiction Award, three times. The film Black's Game, which remains one of the most popular Icelandic movies to be screened in theaters, is based on his eponymous novel. Stefan Maune published the novel Hortnar, Dust in the Wind, in 2021, which was loosely inspired by the murder of Avat Bahud. Only very slightly, he explained. The novel is set in the same area and it tells the story of two young female backpackers but that's pretty much the extent of the similarity. Stefan Maunet clarified that he wanted to distance his novel from the events on Skelarosandur because such cases are sensitive, especially when there's a death involved. It was a horrific and shocking case. It hadn't happened before in Iceland and hasn't happened since. It was somehow this very American form of madness. But I'm opposed to basing crime novels on reality because whenever you take liberties in your writing, it can be hurtful. I'm not, after all, writing true crime. The growing popularity of true crime, beginning perhaps with the podcast Serial and continuing with documentaries like The Jinx and Making a Murderer, some have traced its modern origins to Truman Capote's In Cold Blood and Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line, has much in common with the world's hunger for crime fiction. We've always been and always will be fascinated by crime, Stefan tells me. We're drawn to the horror. 
like moths to a flame. There's also this element of trying to understand these things. Why? How? It's this very human thing, like watching a horror film. It scares us but fascinates us at the same time. It also affords us this sense of release, but it's sensitive material, especially in Iceland, where the distances between people are short. Some time needs to have elapsed before we write about these stories. When asked when he was first drawn to crime and crime fiction, Stefan recalled that his fascination may have begun with the infamous Gulmentur and Gerfinner case in the early 70s. He also remembers being deeply moved by a missing person case in 1974 on the Sneifelsnes Peninsula, where he grew up. There was an old man who disappeared and he's never been found. It was mysterious and uncomfortable, and it affected the community deeply. I remember being with my friends. We were four at the time, and all we knew was that our fathers were on the other side of the mountain searching for this man, and you felt that the community was completely gripped. The same thing happens when a boat capsizes or someone is lost at sea. It sends this shockwave through the community, and everyone is sucked in. According to one theory, posited on a website concerning death, our fascination with true crime has a lot to do with mortality. The author of the theory maintained that the French writer Montaigne would have understood true crime as, quote, a theater of death in which the living can confront their own mortality, overcome the fear of death, and thereby learn to live a life of, quote, easeful tranquility. Yes, death is the only certainty in life, Stefan ponders. We're scared but fascinated by it, and thinking about the death of someone else provides a sense of relief. He breathes out cathartically. You experience death without dying yourself. Stefan has considered the possibility of writing true crime, but ultimately rejected it. So far. Like Truman Capote? Yeah, sure, but like I said, it's sensitive material. Iceland is so small. There are cases that are fascinating, but it's easier to do in a place where there is greater distance between people. Ragnar Jonsson Ragnar Jonsson, not to be confused with crime writer Ragnar Jonasson, is Iceland's foremost bloodstain pattern specialist. He's dedicated over two decades of his career to Iceland's CSI unit and has investigated many of the country's most high-profile cases. Someone recently referred to him as Iceland's Dexter. Well, Dexter's more about getting rid of people, Ragnar tells me, whereas I'm trying to find out who got rid of them. I ask whether he sees a psychologist, given that he spent so many years investigating many of Eisen's most gruesome cases. I think that if I were to go see a psychologist, the psychologist would need to see a psychologist, Ragnar quips. Given the psychological toll of crime scene investigations, Ragnar hopes to retire from policing early. Over the past years, he's set his sights on screenwriting. A few years before the pandemic, he had an idea for a script that eventually became an eight-episode TV series called Black Sands. It was partly inspired by the murder on Skelerosandur. I knew of the case, of course, Ragnar explains. When I got the idea for Black Sands, I had been doing a lot of work in South Iceland, investigating tourist deaths in the area. Some of them had drowned, others had fallen to their death when hiking, and while investigating these cases, I began to entertain the idea, what if these weren't accidents? What if there was someone out there who had a grudge against tourists? 
and the idea evolved from there. On the topic of the public's appetite for crime, Ragnar has his own theory. It's got to do with uncertainty and our hunger for truth. All of us know that we're going to die, and we're simultaneously fascinated and terrified by it. Someone has gone missing or has been murdered, and we want to find the person responsible. We get sucked in. Like Stefan, Ragnar also finds an element of memento mori in the genre. We won't live forever, and no matter the money we make, we can't take it with us. All that survives is our reputation. What kind of person were we? Aside from writing crime fiction for television, Ragnar recently partook in the making of the TV program Ummerki, Evidence, where he revisits the scenes of some of Iceland's most famous crimes with journalist Sunna Karin Sigurdorsdóttir. He has his reasons for wanting to review these forgotten horrors. Part of it is reflection. What did we as investigators do well, and what could we have done better? These cases are part of the public record, and they should be covered. Brian Allen, Canada's foremost bloodstain pattern analyst, has said that it is our job as investigators to speak for those who can't speak or are too afraid to speak. This is why I get up in the morning, to find the truth and seek justice. Ragnar has faced criticism for his work digging into sensitive cases. It opens up old wounds, and there are plenty of people who are offended on behalf of others. When asked about the benefits of broadcasting such reflections publicly, as opposed to conducting private professional reviews, Ragnar thought for a while and then seemed to suggest that public coverage empowers private citizens to effect change. Some of these cases didn't need to play out the way they did, Ragnar says solemnly. There were warning signs, but the system failed. And I mean in terms of the police as well. Sometimes we lack the appropriate authority to act. As far as true crime podcasts are concerned, Ragnar is not a regular listener, but believes, like Stefan and Sigurdstedt, that such material should be produced with professionalism and care. It's something that you learn as a cop. We're intervening in people's lives during their most vulnerable moments. It's not our role to judge. I asked if there was any merit in allowing difficult cases to fade into history as opposed to consistently dredging them up. People's curiosity will probably never be fully slaked, Icelanders especially. We're a storytelling nation. It's always followed us, this morbid curiosity. The Importance of Discernment It seems unlikely that our morbid curiosity will ever be fully slaked. One can only hope, with the resurgence of true crime, that those revisiting old criminal cases adequately weigh the moral questions that are inextricable from the genre. Rachel Chestnut's essay in the New York Times was quoted in another article on the website The Click. Under the heading Troubling Trends in True Crime, the author stressed the importance of discernment when it came to the genre while warning against the exploitation of victims. They also noted the motivating ethics of the storyteller, coverage skewing towards white perpetrators and victims, and the profit motive. One of the authors also attempted to establish a victim-centric rubric for true crime reporting. Quote, The best case scenario for any true crime content is when the victim and their family participate. That means they have control over the narrative. 
The next best scenario is when the victim and their family are aware and supportive, whether or not they participate. The worst-case scenario, which opens up the floodgates for victims and their stories to be exploited, is when there is no participation from the victim, their families, or someone related to the case. This is when audiences tend to forget that these are real people who have dealt with tragedy and the story becomes more for entertainment value. Going forward, it seems inevitable that old criminal cases will be dredged up and covered in variously professional ways. Some will be entertaining, others will be exploitative, only a few will hold up to the rigors of compassionate journalism. Mariah Day, whose mother Betsy Faria was murdered in 2011 in a case that attracted, quote, breathless media coverage, as one outlet phrased it, now advocates for victim awareness. My trauma is not your entertainment, she observed in a TikTok video. Awareness is a whole different story. Let's talk about it. Well, thank you for sharing the story today, Rachnar. And on that note, let's talk about it. <laughs> sure. Um, so I guess just one thing that's kind of uh, in the back of my mind is, um, you know, in a couple of these different profiles that you give, there's maybe a kind of theory of true crime that's put forward, um, which, you know, maybe we could kind of call a therapeutic theory of true crime. And, you know, these are traumatic events. And by kind of engaging with it in the proper way, we can kind of overcome it and, you know, have a better relationship to both the trauma itself and ultimately our own death, our own mortality. Um, but, you know, I mean, to me, it does seem like there is still something that lingers there. You know, I mean, clearly not everybody is kind of engaging with this kind of thing just in order to kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, be more well-adjusted or something. You know, I mean, like there is definitely uh, something in this kind of literature, content, podcast, movies that uh, speaks to something else. What do you think that is? Yeah, I think, to be fair, I think Sigurdstedt Malson, who is uh, Iceland's leading crime reporter, as noted in the article, was was really the only person advocating for a kind of like, you know, true crime having possible therapeutic benefits sure. for people you know who are who are in some ways involved in the case and who agree to sort of revisit it you know i think that may be born of his experiences with visiting marilus the sister of um the woman who was killed in scalar center because she you know I, I think maybe he experienced firsthand that she really you know, maybe that whole process helped her to come to terms with it. Um, although I'm less convinced by that idea, I think his second sort of argument, which is like, well, we're a small country, and if someone doesn't sort of go through these cases again after the dust is settled and really take a kind of fact-based approach to it, um, then we avoid you know this kind of sort of gossipy way of, you know, we, we get the facts and, and we don't gossip, you know, I, I think that's perfectly valid. And I think uh, as far as Stefan and, and Ragnar, they had this idea of, you know, this kind of thing being sort of cathartic, yeah. the manner of 
old Greek theater that you know you you live through a tragic event and it's sort of you know you you, you come out of it maybe feeling I mean a, a bit more appreciative grateful for for life um, and I, I think there's a certain validity to that but yeah I, I think what you know what they mentioned as well was that you know there is this sort of double-edged sword it's fascinating and it's terrifying and um you know i don't know where that feeling comes from i mean i think probably because we're mortal creatures and we know that we're going to die and we hope that we don't meet our fates in such a gruesome way and and also as seus had noted there's just this sort of fascination with i mean we we're most of us will never end up killing someone hopefully and and you know <laughs> just trying to understand what motivates a person to do like something so terrible you know is is fascinating yeah i mean certainly the motivation question is interesting and um you know you outlined uh this case at skedra uh, sander and you know the the interesting thing to me is just how irrational and kind of random every incident there was i mean you can kind of feel that the perpetrator also didn't really know what they were doing it's like they kind of visited the girls earlier in the evening and then they came back and like everything just feels very um yeah i mean just random really yeah and i mean of course we only i only sort of skim through the story in the article but um to give some backstory i think the individual in question um the the guy who committed the murder um he he had been in some sort of legal trouble before i think he lived up north in akureyri and i think he was arrested whether he had made some kind of threats or for possession of firearms and i think i read somewhere i don't remember maybe it was Sustain who mentioned that he had sort of impersonated a police officer before so this person was actually working for i think it's the national automobile association in iceland mm. and they had this special role where they had someone who was sort of you know um aiding with road safety so i guess his role would be to you know dr- drive the highway and offer roadside assistance and so i mean that was like a way for him in this instance to sort of you know i mean the sisters felt that he was a police officer because yeah. it looked like he was a cop and he sort of insinuated that he was you know worked with the police which wasn't true and yeah i mean as far as the motive is concerned he would later claim that he had fired these shots as an accident the police said that that wasn't very believable he also said that he could see something going on inside the rest hut when he drove drove past later the police said that you know given the darkness that would have been impossible and then there's also this interesting thing with like because he says you know his his um you know his uh, argument for arresting them was because they were smoking hash and there's also this element of like you know prejudice against drug users during this time in the 80s and the 70s which was also um something that came up during the Gerfenur and Gumunter case that these were sort of hippie countercultural people who you know deserved everything that came to them for some reason and and yeah the, the motive just 
it seems utterly bizarre, and that's part of the the horror. I mean, why why do this? It just doesn't make any any kind of sense. No, yeah, no, it doesn't. Um, and you know, I mean, I think that I mean this has certainly been talked about endlessly elsewhere, but I mean, it is just interesting to kind of note how you know true crime as a genre isn't just popular in Iceland, but, you know, uh, there's this whole other genre of, like, Nordic noir, or whatever you want to call it, across the Scandinavian countries, and, you know, I mean, it does strike me as interesting how these social democracies that are often held up in foreign media as, you know, like, the paragons of uh, social progress, etc., you know, I mean, very often uh, people have somewhat simplified views of... uh, whether it's Iceland, Sweden, Norway, as, you know, essentially being utopia. Um, and, you know, I mean, like, it is interesting, right, how these genres have really thrived uh, in these countries that are kind of perceived of as so flawless. And, you know, I mean, like, clearly, you know, there's something interesting happening there. Um, and I guess I'm just kind of wondering what your take on that is briefly. Yeah, I, I think because, I mean, so Iceland particularly, if we take... That is sort of a specific example. Uh, the murder rate in Iceland has, you know, been relatively low per capita. Um, so the figures, I think, differ slightly. But I've heard, you know, some people say we've had an average of two murders per year. If you, you know, look back over four or five decades, uh, some say that maybe it's closer to four. But anyway, um, per capita, it's it's very low. Um, and I'm not familiar with the numbers in, in the rest of Scandinavia, but um, what strikes me, what, the first thing that comes up to my, comes to my mind when you say this is, well, yeah, that's why it's so fascinating, in Iceland particularly, because it's, it's so rare, and also because we are, you know, this close-knitted society. Most people are interrelated, relatively homogenous. I think, um, I think it was uh, probably... Ten years ago, I mean, there were foreigners in Iceland were maybe 8% of the total population, but that's changed. I think it's closer to 16% now. But, yeah, so that that's the first point that, you know, it's fascinating because it's rare. And also, I think um, uh, during, as I mentioned in the article, we're in the process of producing a, a podcast series on true crime in Iceland, and, and we spoke to a criminologist who grew up in Bredholtis, which is Iceland's, um, it's one of the few neighborhoods in Reykjavik, which is, you know, differs significantly from other neighborhoods. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it, it has differed since, I think, the 70s or, 70s or maybe 60s, when it, it was that neighborhood in Reykjavik where they, I believe, they, they built a lot of social housing. So it, there was a concentration of lower-income families, and also... Um, the average age of the residents was a lot lower than the national average. So what you had was, um, you know, this sort of low-income young population, and the crime rate was significantly higher in that particular neighborhood than the rest of Reykjavik. And this criminologist that we spoke to grew up there, and she made the point of, you know, I I grew up around crime when I was younger. I mean, everybody was committing petty crimes, and to me, it was just a part of life, and it wasn't so exotic. And that's the thing 
about sort of maybe true crime and Nordic noir that's sort of, I want to say, skewed a bit that, you know, you, you, like her point was that, well, crime is, you know, these, even though these cases sound extreme and exotic, maybe they aren't so dramatic as we'd like to make them out to be. Mm-hmm. And that that's one of the problems with the genre is, like mentioned in, in the article, is that, you know, it's over-dramatizing these events, which is, you know, it's, it's far from the truth, and it's also a bit exploitative. And so, yeah, as far as Nordic noir being popular in the Nordic countries, I think it just has a lot to do with, you know, how exotic and how rare these occurrences are. I mean, certainly in the case of Iceland, uh, just statistics are also kind of inherently hard to grapple with uh, precisely because, you know, I mean, I think last year, uh, don't don't quote me on this, but I, leave it, but I believe that in 2022 there were three murders. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, that was up from the two from 2021. So then, you know, you have essentially a 50% increase in one year uh, with one murder. And so when you're dealing with, sm- like with such small sample sizes, you can kind of get these weird swings uh where you know i mean maybe yeah uh one year there's four murders four murders uh and you know like does that constitute a murder spree i mean uh does that reflect some sort of fundamental change in icelandic society or is it just kind of like a random error that comes from small sampling yeah that's exactly um that's exactly right and like uh, Margaret Valdemarsdóttir, the criminologist to whom I spoke recently, she said, yeah, I mean, we had, yeah, there was a record broken, broken, whether it was this year or last year, with the number of murders per year, but it actually equaled another year in the early aughts. Um, and the point is that, yeah, naturally, when the figures are so small, 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 there are these swings, but then if you average it out over longer periods, uh, the average is, stays relatively the same. But also another point that she made was that, well, Iceland's population has grown rather quickly um, and accounting for the number of tourists who are in the country, that, yeah, it, not much has changed fundamentally, even though maybe the trends are, you know, it, it's beginning to trend upwards, but only time will tell if, if that translates into some kind of cultural or demographic shift. Sure. And, you know, I mean, I think it's also worth to just think about how, um, you know, I think that it's always easy to think that uh, whatever we're dealing with right now is new. Um, And, you know, so, I mean, yes, clearly there has been some sort of... uh, increased interest in true crime, Nordic noir, noir, et cetera, in like the last, I mean, it's been like a good 20 years now, I think. I mean, uh, like those Stieg Larsson books were really popular. Um, and, you know, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, like certainly it's been in the popular consciousness for a long time. Um, but, you know, I think that there's also this kind of interesting thing that happens where with each new form of media, there's a kind of explosion of this thing that happens at the same time. And then because it's kind of coming along with a new media form, we kind of might not recognize it as 
an interest that in some way we've always had. I mean, uh, one of the reasons why like the like the Jack the Ripper cases uh, were such a big deal uh, when they happened in London was precisely because print media was really kind of going through this explosion. And I mean, obviously there were such things as magazines and, and newspapers before then, but you know, like this was really kind of like at the height of print newspaper and the broadsheet as we have now kind of come to understand it. Or, you know, I mean, uh, just one of the most critically acclaimed movies of all time from Weimar, Germany, just M, uh, you know, from the 30s, uh, is kind of a true crime narrative. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, none of that's to say that, uh, like, this stuff isn't still interesting, but, um, you know, we, we've definitely been thinking about murder and what drives people to murder for a long time. Yeah, certainly. I think maybe the big change over the past decade or so has been the rise of podcasts, obviously, yeah. with particularly the phenomenon of serial, I think, which, you know, was just this huge thing and coincided with Netflix documentaries like The Jinx and Making a Murder. Um, so, yeah, and, and also maybe... We've seen it here in Iceland with the rise of like, <clears throat> um, you know, these amateur podcast hosts who dig into crime, you know, past crime cases, serial killers and stuff. And and where you have this sort of chit chatty format, it's like two friends discussing a case. And, you know, I mean, th that's something new that I think we the world hasn't seen before, which probably you know, has, has broadened the reach of the genre in some sense. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, this is by no means, you know, a, a new fascination for human beings. Well, and also not to be uh, just a total contrarian, but, you know, I mean, also there's a way of uh, just reading uh, the national treasures of Iceland as true crime. Uh, the Icelandic sagas are nothing but uh, long strings of family histories interspersed with gang violence and murder. Um, and they are, you know, I mean, obviously there are fictional elements in there, but most of it's more or less historical. And so uh, if that qualifies as true crime, then uh, maybe true crime uh, runs very deep in Icelandic history. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I think on that note, uh, I'll say thank you for sharing the article today, Ragnar. It was really interesting. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, Iceland's oldest English language publication covering community, culture, and nature. If you enjoyed listening, please consider liking and subscribing. You can also find news and long-form journalism articles on IcelandReview.com. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and the website formerly known as Twitter, X.